Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Hello, and welcome to the V podcast. Today, we're joined by two special guests, Professor Ed File and Dr. Natasha Kuto. Uh, Ed File is a professor of bacterial evolution at the University of Bath. His interests include genomic evolution of back- pathogenic bacteria of both men and animals. Early work is mostly on Staphylococcus aureus, where more recent work includes gram-negatives such as Klebsiella pneumoniae, particularly in an AMR and One Health perspective. But he's also worked on Borrelia, Burkholderia, Wolbachia, Melissococcus, Rhinobacterium, Vibrio, Streptococcus, Neisseria, E. coli, Mycobacterium, Bartonella, and amongst many, many others. And he also has an he also has an interest in both bees and aquaculture. Dr. Natasha Couteau is a data scientist at the Center of Genomic Pathogen Surveillance at the University of Oxford. Natasha is a veterinary doctor and got her PhD in 2016. Her research focuses on the molecular epidemiology, population genomics, and ecology of a broad range of bacterial and viral pathogens of both animals and humans. She uses next-generation sequencing and bioinformatics to understand transmission of bacterial and viral pathogens and the emergence and spread of AMR between humans and animals. She's worked on a range of organisms as well, including MRSA, Staph, E. coli, Klebsiella, all of the enterococci and enteromycobacterium, including abscessus and TB, and flu, and also pigs. So welcome to you both. It's great to have you on the show today. And we're talking about MLST, multi-locus sequence typing. If you look at the original paper in PNAS from 1999, you will find the third author is this is is this Edward File fellow, <laughs> and we've we've so I decided we'll we'll have Ed on to tell us all of the dark secrets of MLSD, what really happened twenty five years ago, and Natasha also as a user of MLSD who mainly works in it from the genomic side looking in, so it should be a fun fun episode. So let's get started. I, I'll give an easy thing that people might not understand. Most schemes, particularly, for instance, like the Neisseria one, it's seven genes, right? Or most schemes have the, most schemes have seven genes or 10 genes or whatever. What's the decision-making for that number? Okay, so for, for, for Neisseria meningitis, if you look at that original nine, 1998 paper, there are actually 11 genes used in that paper. There were six, what we'd now consider to be classic MLST genes, which are the housekeeping metabolic genes. And there were five more variables of outer membrane proteins and so on. So there was there was half of one and half of the other. So it was it was determined. So bef- so to go back a step, before we had MLST, we had a thing called MLEE, which was a, a gel-based technique whereby you basically mush up, you have a, a, a cell extract with enzymes still working and you you run that extract through a starch gel 
and you stain it with various chromogenic compounds that actually change color to show you the position of how far the proteins got. So you could measure protein mobility and you had various different what were called allozymes. Okay. So that was the, the, and that was a really, really, that was the first time we could assay molecular variation in populations. So that's a technique that went back to, to the sort of late sixties. So, and it was an absolute nightmare to do. So, so, but there was a, an MLE scheme for Neisseria mitosis. There was one person in the world that could really do it, and that, and she's still doing it. She's still in Oslo. So that was Dominique Kogon. So the way it worked was that before MLST came, everybody basically had to to send their strains off to Dominique in Oslo, and she would run them on the start shelf because it wasn't a portable technique. So the only way you could score an allele was to run it side by side with with other strains which you knew that the the allen was for so you could compare them directly on the same gel okay so there was a and, and there was about 15 loci used in that i think it's about 15 loci used in that scheme so when mlst came along and that's quite an established scheme so you had the various different lineages in the the different steroid groups a b and c and when mlst came along the idea was that you should that it was necessary to recover the same lineages that had been talked about before defined by MLEE. Okay. So those, those five that were more variable loci, the non-MLST genes, they were thrown out because actually they weren't bringing anything to the party. It was found that just with those six genes, you could more or less recapitulate the MLEE groups, <laughs> but not quite. So later on, there was a seventh which was just brought in just to delineate, just to separate one group that couldn't be couldn't be distinguished on the basis of those six genes. So it's calibrated entirely to fit with the existing MLEE genes and to have no more uh, expense and no more you know, resources than that. So that, that was the minimum amount of genes that you could have to basically get what you got from, from the MLEE. So that's why seven genes were both chosen. But it it worked as a as a reasonable sort of sweet sweet spot as it turned out for 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 most other species. And so it's it's just you know the trade off of of expense versus um, resolution. We should probably step back. I forgot to ask you what is multi locus sequence typing for those for anyone <laughs> out there who doesn't oh. know, but someone so, might not know. Having having explained multi locus enzyme electrophoresis, so so. It is essentially, it was a typing method where you could define strains on the basis of not complete sequences, partial sequences uh, up to about 500 base pairs, which was defined by the sequencing, because that's, that's how much you could get with, with sequencing runs going in opposite directions, how much clean sequence you can get with, with, with sequencing both strands. So it was a way by which you could index variation, nucleotide variation, in seven genes, in a small number of housekeeping, boring housekeeping genes, which were assumed to represent the, the kind of underlying evolutionary relatedness, the phylogeny of, of, the, of the population. Okay, so they were picked to be boring, they were picked to be under purifying selection to minimize any confounding effect of diversifying selection or recombination of those sorts of things. So, we, so and that, that was kind of a, a, a novel idea. And which was, uh, and the novelty is basically demonstrated by the fact that in the first scheme, Mark Atman insisted on using the more commonly used highly diverse genes, which were which were subsequently sort of thrown out. The other really novel thing about it was that it used this new fancy shiny thing called the internet, um, and it was the first time because it 
sequence data is digital. It was the first time that any, anybody had really put epidemiological databases up in a, in, a, in a way that anybody anywhere could actually type that, follow this methodology, there being a hospital in Australia or America or wherever, and immediately be able to compare it with that database to see where that fitted in with the whole big picture. And that is absolutely revolutionary because this was, you know, late nights is the early days of the internet. People just hadn't really sort of cottoned on to how it could be used for, for epidemiology before. Okay. And I should mention that when you take each of these, so you have these set of loci, some, some number, and you take the sequence of that fragment and you're measuring the distances, the differences between those, the number of differences between those loci for each of your strains. And if the sequence is identical, then you give it the same allele number. It's not counted. If it differs by even one base, it counts as a difference. Is that correct, Ed? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, sorry, yeah. I didn't explain that. So, so you end up with a, an allelic profile, so an allele number for each of, of, of the, the, the gene loci so that you've sequenced, so like a telephone number. And then that unique telephone number itself gets a number, which is the sequence type, the, the ST. And there was a reason why it was non-parametric in the sense that it didn't matter whether an allele differed at one base or a hundred bases in that it was, it was just, I mean, it made the, the, the whole thing easier to analyze when you just have like a string of integers. But actually there was also a recognition even very early on that you could have recombination affecting an allele which may introduce one base, it may introduce 10 bases, it may introduce 20 bases. So in other words, the number of bases by which two alleles of a given locus differed didn't necessarily tell you anything about the number of evolutionary events that have passed to, to, to explain those differences. So it was just either they're the same or they're different. It wasn't, this is a, these alleles are really different from each other or these alleles are quite different. You know, they're just different or the same. Yep. And I will point out that you must recover the allele sequence for every loci to have a valid sequence type. A few people have come to me with missing things, missing profiles with missing alleles and saying, what do I do with this? It's like, you can't do anything. It just didn't work. <laughs> no, no, that's right. that's right. All right. Natasha, do you have any, anything to add on understanding MLST, particularly for people who come from a genomics background? What's your take on it? I mean, I think for me, when I would you know, doing my PhD and I, I started my PhD in 2011 and I, I didn't have access to whole genome sequencing. And so for me, MLST was, was very useful because it was, it was a way that I could, you know, communicate with other microbiologists or epidemiologists and I could link my data into what's, you know, out there on the internet, like, like Ed was saying. And I said, I think, you know, and, and I had to review all these older techniques that were used for, for epidemiology, and I could clearly see what was the benefit of, of using MLSD and, and how, you know, how you could kind of put a name on something or, or put a number on something, and you could speak to other people about you know, E. coli SC131 would know what, what that was and, and how, you know, pathogenic or dangerous a certain lineage could be. And so I think, I mean, for me, 
it was very useful when I started with my master's and then with my PhD and it, it still is very useful, very useful typing technique to be able to, to speak to others about a certain lineage and how dangerous or, or not it can be. So, yeah, yeah, I'm curious so. about that from the epi perspective, because when I started, I remember going to conferences and seeing a lot of people say MLST was no good because it didn't have the discriminatory power of PFG. And PFG was the way to go, particularly in, a, in an epi sense. What is, what is PFG? Why would you choose one over the other? And maybe dare say which is better i don't think so so pfg is pulse field gel electrophoresis which is another band-based method so that immediately puts it in the same category as the, in a sense as the original you know mlee where you had to compare samples directly on a gel it was very much a standard it's also you have to have quite a dedicated lab to do it 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 was it got quite sophisticated in 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 how far it got digitalized. So there was there was there was pretty good software that enabled you to sort of scan these gels and 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 define your strains on the on the basis of the of the mobility patterns you saw. But it was still not digital like sequence data is digital. It it took quite a long time to to fizzle out because there was a lot of investment, particularly in the states, I think, in 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 PulseNet, which was all based on pulse fields. And, you know, once you put that investment and and people know what they're talking about and everything sort of, sort of seems to work, then it's very hard to sort of turn that ship around. Um, whether it's better than MLST, whether it it, it, it it caused more higher resolution, I think it actually depends on the species. So, because it works by, it's a restriction, it's a restriction fragment digest, right? So, you're just you're just picking up variations in the presence absence of particular restriction sites in your in in the genome. So, in that sense, in a sense, it's you don't know. It has the big disadvantage in the, that you, you you can't go in and actually look at the what's causing the variation very easily. So you don't know exactly what's going on in terms of the genetics that cause the diff, the variation you're seeing. But at the same, but it did it was a genome wide technique, so it did detect changes in accessory. You know, we didn't really know that there was such a thing as an accessory genome in, in the in the 90s, but it, it was detecting parts of the genome, it was reaching parts of the genome that MLST wasn't. Um, so whether it's better or not kind of depends on the species. You know, if you've got quite a stable genome, then MLST was fine. If you've got a lot of variation in the accessory genome, then PFG was picking that up and MLST wasn't. So it swings and roundabouts to to a to a degree there. But really the 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 in the end the advantage of MLST was it's because sequence data is digital and you can put it on it's much easier to store and much easier to compare and that actually quite quickly became much easier to do than pulse field outside those big dedicated labs that were just like big factories for doing it. Natasha, what about you? Did you encounter PFG early on? I did a lot of it? yeah, I did a lot of PFG. As I said, I. I I didn't have access to whole genome sequencing at a time and what we had available was PFG. We would start off with, with MLSD, of course, and then we would, you know, carry on with, with PFG, especially if we were trying, you know, like 
I, I didn't mention this, but I, during my PhD, I was trying to find strains, base strains that were similar between animals and humans, all sorts of animals, I have to say, not only pigs. And so it was, to me, I had, I needed that resolution that PFG could give me that that MLST could not, because I could find, for example, ST398 in humans and in animals, but I really wanted to, you know, be sure that I had enough resolution to say, okay, this is probably, there was a transmission event here, or there wasn't a transmission event, or, you know, there was dissemination of of this certain strain, or or there was not. And I think at the, I mean, at least I I was not working at a a human hospital at, at the time, but the idea that I have is that when when it came to hospital outbreaks, they would be using PFG, like we kind of used now SNP analysis to define, you know, what what strains were belong to a cluster or or to an outbreak and what which strains were did not belong to to an outbreak. I think at least for MRSA, that was the level of resolution that was needed in at, at the hospital level. Although, like Ad said, it, you know, you'd really needed very dedicated people to, to do this. And of course, there were also other, there were also other options like MLVA or what was the name of the, of the rep PCR, I think it was yeah, for, yeah. for E. coli. Yeah. So yeah, you had other options, but at least when I, when I was, I was using PFG to, to have better resolution than, than MLST for MRSA. I've been really enjoying the conversation because I don't know if you know this, but I I started off in meningitis. And so my whole thesis was on Neisseria and, and everything. And so a bunch of your stories was just were ju- just giving me flashbacks. Like I and, and I was in the I was actually in the CDC meningitis reference lab for a year. Okay. So I, I remember names like Dominique. I remember um uh, looking at the software that that Keith Jolly came by to set up stars <laughs> and everybody doing MLST. So it's very interesting. And I don't know if I have a specific question, but it's just been really good hearing it all. I noticed that you don't really have Neisseria in your biography. Have you have you kind of moved on from that toward Oh uh, well well yeah I have. I haven't I haven't worked on so my PhD was on uh Neisseria meningitis and gonorrhea. So so my PhD was was to sequence ADK and RECA in meningitis and gonococcus, each in seven genes, each in seven strains. So, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, so it was like in gene sequences, and that was my, so you had to clone it and everything. But they they were the they were the they were the the sequences that went into the MLS the final MLST schemes. So that was my so those two loci were my contribution ADK and RECA. If I remember that paper had like 107 genes. It had 107 genes. Yeah. So I didn't do all those. It's because I'd sequenced those because they weren't genome, right? Before genome sequences, you had to clone the gene to get the sequence. And that took a year. <laughs> so, <laughs> it took me a year anyway. <laughs> so, That's a lot of so, work. Um, so yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks for the walk down memory lane. Yeah. Now people complain if the Illumina run takes more than three days. <laughs> I actually have a question for Ed, if if that's yeah, go okay. For it. Yeah, I was I was going to mention eBurst because you were yeah. the developer of eBurst, right? So why why was there a need to do eBurst 
Um, well, actually, this, in a sense, this comes back to what we were talking about on the other podcast when it comes to, to, to figures. Before, so the standard way of visualizing the, the MLST data originally was using UPGMA dendrograms. And I distinctly remember my, my supervisor, Brian Spratt, he kept a magnifying glass in his office drawer so he could look at the dendrograms that came even with like a hundred strains right they were really really hard to to actually read and look at and he literally had a magnifying glass in his test so he could read all the labels and so on so it it i thought there must i just thought there'd be a better way of drawing it and and brian has set me this project which involved it, it actually came from a paper from gutman and dykhausen where they on e coli where they they showed that you could actually if you if you took really really similar sequences in e coli you could actually directly just score mutation events and recombination events because you haven't got all you haven't got to dissect out all the all the all the subsequent events so that this is a trick which has stayed with me to this day actually if you look at really really closely related stuff everything's a lot easier so so he he said look at the ML, look at the mlst data and if you can figure out you know whether alleles differing by recombination or mutation according to how different they are and, and try and do something quantitative with that and that came from that paper and then as a process of doing that it 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 was really obvious for the for the staph aureus data and for the nicerium meningitis data that actually you had this model where you had a central genotype and then you had spokes coming out from that central genotype which, which differed by one locus so one SLV, I invented the SLV <laughs> during that time. And, and, and that became the one I said, well, that, that's, that's what's happening. So why don't we just draw it like that rather than a, this funny dendrogram where you've actually got the, the founder, the ancestor actually at the same level as all the, all the descendants. Let's just put that in the middle and have all the descendants and not worry particularly at that point about how to connect all those different groups up. Let's just go with that model and draw it. It's a really simple, simple idea, but it was, it, it kind of, just i guess got people thinking different ways of visualizing thinking in circles and this different way of of looking of visualizing the data getting away from that classic dendrogram tree shape which was actually not only almost impossible to look at but actually quite misleading in many ways because you didn't have that that model of clonal expansion implicitly in it so that's what kind of led me to Ebus and 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 the actual nuts and bolts of it are, are absolutely incredibly simple. I mean, there's nothing clever there at all. <laughs> oh, that oh no, Ebus is great. I wouldn't put yourself down on that. So, if you look at the original paper, which I think is in JBAC 2004, yeah. and you look at the first figure, that is precisely what Ed is showing. There's this head head to head of the this very fairly. It's a simple dendrogram, but it's it's actually quite ugly to look at and then you it's have really ugly and it doesn't it doesn't yeah. tell you about how the things evolved right it hasn't got that clonal that spent that clonal radiation thing going on and then you and then it, it's very cleverly to slap the actual eburst figure equivalent in the middle of it just to show like hey you see this trash forget it this is the new hotness <laughs> <laughs> and and then you look at the the, the other couple of figures then the, these beautiful constellations of clonal complexes and i think that that's that's the that's the magic right as you were saying loves a good figure so they they even with data sets they look they look quite gorgeous but is it so is it you 
to blame for the use of minimum spanning trees? With well, I think so. So I did actually contact Bionumerics about this idea at some point. I didn't hear anything from the minimum spanning trees appeared in their next version of their, their software but i mean and essentially it i mean there are some differences but the nuts and bolts of basically identifying the center of gravity of these clonal complexes on the basis that they define the maximum number of near neighbors that that was that was the real trick so so i was always a little bit frustrated that they called it a minimum spanning tree because there's lots of different, like hundreds of thousands of different solutions, minimal ways by which you can connect all these genotypes. But it's not until you actually apply this model of having a central founding genotype defined as in terms of the maximum number of neighbors that you can actually pick one solution that kind of makes sense. You still have to be a bit arbitrary if there's, you know, there's, there's details where there might be you know ties in 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 the in how you rank things and stuff but that was that 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 basic nuts and bolts it was the same in the minimum spanning tree which joao and his colleagues in in lisbon recognized very early and they came up with file which is which is brilliant which was actually an improve definitely an improvement on the original universe program what what would you have called minimum spanning trees if you could have named them instead since you had a an issue with them so well, I don't know, really. I never really thought about it. I mean, they, it was a minimal spanning tree, but it was misleading in that it was one possible minimal spanning tree out of lots of different solutions, right? And so, I, oh, I don't know. E-burst? Call it a phylogram. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I've, I've moved on. <laughs> it's all right. Well, people people still use things like minimum spanning trees to this day for even CGMST data. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely, and I, I and I do like to think at some at some level that I got people thinking in terms of circles rather than dendrograms, which is a nice a nice contribution, I think. <laughs> I was wondering, like, as a user of of MLST, and and I've recently been involved in 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 getting huge data sets and, and doing MLST. So yeah, getting the, the typing for numerous different species. Do you think the quality of the genomes, you know, the, the quality of the MLST schemes that, that derives from, from the, that original paper were as good as, as the ones that you helped develop? Because I, I kind of have the idea that, at least for some species like Pseudomonas and Acinetobacter, that maybe because sequencing was not so available at the time that they maybe didn't select the best the best genes i think that's completely fair there's a good example it's in the pneumococcus of the gene which is just absolutely i think there may even be two copies of it in some genomes or something there's something really fundamentally wrong with it yeah i mean and again that those genes were picked before there was a genome sequence available so they were picked on the basis of them being most likely to be, as I said, under under boring purifying selection, central metabolism genes, nothing particularly interesting going on in terms of their evolution. But we didn't know, you know, it, <laughs> what how well they were going to pan out. And I'm sure that that there's the in, in almost all of the schemes there were some genes which are yeah, some choices were better than others. I'm sure you could have optimized them, but you know that's that's 
we were working in the dark a little bit. I want to ask a question that that follows on from that, but it's a bit more fuzzy. So I read, I, I think it was you in, in a review with Martin Maiden that I was reading recently, and it talks about how, about clonality in bacterial species. And when you think about it, MLST is assuming that the population will fall into these discrete clones, sure. that there are genes that actually will be boring and sort of stiff and, and reflect that. Do you feel that, but I do know from certain organisms, so E. coli at, at a point, if you take the MLS, if you look at the original MLSD scheme in that paper, they show that it, it like it kind of works, but it doesn't like there's a point where it starts to break down the certain parts of E. coli where, where that assumption doesn't seem to hold, at least in the data presented in that paper. And I'm curious, how do you feel about clonality in a bacterial species today? Is that a given? Do you expect that to happen? Or is it because we started looking at pathogenic clones first and maybe fooled ourselves a bit that that was yeah, how well, worked? I think this this was a realization that was that was all that came straight away. Actually, I mean, there was um, a big debate around the sort of mid nineties. There was there was a big debate about how much recombination is going on in in, in bacterial populations because all the all the MLEE work from the big American labs, Bob Salander and Howard Ottman and that that crowd. They're always saying bacteria don't recombine. There's all it's all it's all clonal. It's all it's it's everything falls into these nice little groups. That was that was the dogma. When sequence data came along, even before MLST, that dogma began to be chipped away at a little bit. And there was quite a heated debate about where bacterial populations sat between the two extremes. On one hand, you had clonality, no recombination, everything fitting into these nice, nice groups. And on the other hand, you have pamixia, which is in the word you hear so much these days. But that was the idea that everything's so mixed up that there's absolutely no lineages at all. So this was kind of came to a head in a, in a, with the the Maynard Smith paper, "How Clonal Is Bacteria," where they he basically took the data that was available at that point, the MLE data, and was it, it was MLE data, and basically because this was before MLSC, and basically categorized different different types of populations. So from panmixia, which was gonorrhea. The gonococcus at the time was in that paper was described as having no clonal lineages at all. Everything was just completely equally distant from everything else. And the alleles were in linkage equilibrium. So everything was just completely randomly shuffled to clonal species. And then in the middle somewhere you had Nicera meningitis, which was described as this epidemic structure, which is basically referred to the fact that you had a soup of recombining things where alleles are just flowing backwards and forwards. But on top of that, you had these croutons of, of clonal complexes, which were the virulent clonal complexes, which we were all, which we, which we were mostly focused on. So they, so, so you had, that was the sort of first realization that you could actually have a bit of both. You could have clonality and you could have a lot of recombination going on at the same time. And then you had to explain that kind of paradox in terms of what are those, is it, is it all the just oversampling particular clonal lineages partly? Is it because those clonal lineages, the particular combinations of alleles are adaptive and this is a selective thing, keeping those things together? Probably partly as well. 
or they could just be hitchhiking on one particularly favorable gene so there's so so there were nuances entered into that that whole population structure from very very early on because it was all about those early that early work was all about answering the question of how much recombination is going on so there is confusion about when people say it's a colonial population they can infer that it's not recombining very much and that may be the case but it's not necessarily the case so there's always there's 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 ways by which we've known since those days where you could have clones and still have quite a recombining population so no i mean I, even from those i think the 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 closing words of my phd thesis was something along the lines of there's no pattern in in bacterial population structures so i haven't been surprised at any anything that's come since then because i had no expectations of what anything would look like Sathoris is beautifully well-behaved lovely organism something like klebsiella or, or some of the vibrios are just all over the place you can't tell what's what something like burkholderia you have not so much sequence variation but you have a lot of allele shuffling and there's everything in between so yeah and we've known that since since day one really natasha what about you how do you feel about clonality i'm also curious if if you feel that it's is it useful to think to teach it that way talk about clones all the time. And I'm also curious, based on the organisms that you've both worked on, other organisms you worked on, which which would you say are more clonal, which are panmixia, which are somewhere in between, just as a schoolyard question for people to, to remember. It's always interesting to know what to expect. Yeah. I mean, I, I started realizing that maybe, you know, actually I realized that MLSD was not, was not a good choice for me when I started working with Steph's intermediate, first of all, because the MLSD scheme that had been developed for this particular pathogen only contained initially five genes, and, and then it was later changed seven, seven genes. But when I was looking into the resistant population, there was a population structure, yes. So I, I was mostly seeing uh, certain clones, ST71, for example, was the main recipe clone at, at the time when I was doing my PhD. But when I was looking into the, the susceptible population, I could rarely see the same MLST. I mean, any, you know, any sequence, any strain that I was typing that I was doing MLST, I would find a new ST. So basically, there was no population structure. They were all different. Maybe like, like we we talked about before the the MLST scheme was not was not the best and, and definitely in the beginning it was not with, with just five genes um, so that was when I first you know was first confronted with this you know idea of population structure and, and clonality something that I heard I had heard a lot on staff areas and for, for me I think MRSA is you know is the best and the classical example of, of of like Ed said, a well-behaved pathogen that that expands through, you know, through basically vertical transmission, and and there's there's this population structure and these clones that are that are important. I think we 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 started. I mean, I, I wasn't there like like Ed was in, in the beginning, but for me, when when I was reading this these papers and and hearing about clones i think it made sense at the time because you know I, and it still makes sense today because 
you can define these clones based on the fact that they are more frequent in in the resistant population, for example. If you you know if you take a sample and you play those the, the, the strains and then you sequence them, you realize that there's a few a few lineages that appear more often than others. So there's definitely a higher risk of these certain lineages acquiring certain mobile genetic elements, plasmids or integrons or, or whatever. And then other lineages are more prone to acquire virulence. We don't really know why this happens most, in most cases, but there's, you know, there was, there's definitely, I think it's definitely useful to talk about clones and they exist because we've seen a certain pattern in the past and we see a certain pattern still today something natasha touched on earlier when she said you know it, it, it was used for e coli 131 st131 everyone knows what that is now and that's that that kind that that i think is the the legacy of of MLSC for all its flaws there's not there's not many examples i know of where in the genomics era key sort of conclusions from the MLST data have been proved completely wrong which is pretty amazing when you think you know that the genomes only had seven genes in those days so obviously they've been refined and and, and tweaked but i think the the lasting legacy of having the the nomenclature for those 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 key lineages clones whatever you want to call them is it will be the gift that mlst leaves us really and that i mean i guess that that will be set in stone forever now because those lineages are real we know they're real you could say well let's, let's split st131 up into two different things or let's combine it with something else but the lumpers and the splitters thing is always going to happen so 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 good for mlst <laughs> well it's not it's not dead i don't think it's finished no 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 no, no. well no i mean the databases certainly aren't yeah i mean it's it's to, to people actually just sequence seven genes these days and not the whole genome i think so i think people still oh. people will still do it in reference labs out there some people do not okay i thought it's actually easier to do whole genomes these days for for most for some of us yes but for some people it's still difficult to get access to to whole genome yeah. platforms and so mlst is the standard or mlst is what the provincial labs are capable of doing and that's yeah. what they they stick with. So people, I you know remember Keith telling me that people still submit Sanger traces to PubMLST. Right, right. Wow. You know, so it's still there. And and the, the and the fact is 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 if proprietary companies just disappear tomorrow, you can always go back to it. Yeah, so sure. It's a free and open, free and open yeah, software, sure. free and open science. Yeah. <laughs> just to do it the primer sequences are in the paper go for it yeah yeah it's true so yeah i think i think it's not quite quite finished yet but for the most part <laughs> i think it's yeah it definitely has most of the major labs have moved to, to to straight genomics now there was there was a strange time right at the beginning of the sort of genomics era and that there were the next generation platforms where people are actually sequencing whole genome i saw a couple of papers where people would sequence whole genome but just report the mlst just to do mlst it's like what about the other 2000 genes yeah, but anyway no i still see that and i see people yeah. using genomic data just to report the serology right, right. things like that it's like okay right, it's right. a bit it's a bit overkill, but all right, fine, whatever works. I mean, it's just, it's, yeah, you put any organism in it, it's the same pipeline. So I guess it's more efficient yeah. in the end. 
All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank both of our guests, Ed and Natasha, for joining us again. And we'll see you next time on the MicroBinfi podcast. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at MicroBinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.